Well, if you are not going downstairs, then I encourage you to go ahead and turn to the book of Jude. Uh, Today we are in a a large passage in the book of Jude, and actually, uh, and to start off, I'm going to have us, let's go to that memory verse. I want to make sure we don't forget about that. So the challenge has been, as we make our way through the book of Jude, we're going to memorize the doxology at the end. Oh wait, I think there's two slides. Is there one without blanks? Perfect. So here's, here's your cheat sheet time. So go ahead, and uh, we're going to say it, and then we're going to say it again without the blanks. But probably the most well-known part of the book of Jude is the doxology. And when we come back on May 29th, that's the next time we'll be in Jude, uh, we're going to preach this section. Uh, but there's so much truth. There's so much beauty here. And so we said, hey, how about we, we work on memorizing it together? And so let's go ahead and read it together, and then we're going we're gonna to take a stab at reading it with some blanks in it. You already saw what that's going to look like, so pay attention closely. And we'll read it. It says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Can you do it with some blanks? Aaron's like, yeah, I don't know. Um, all right. Now, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. time, <laughs> forever. Amen. Well, we just went right through that. Man, that last one, I was like, man, what is it? It was authority. You guys knew that one. I was blanking on that one. So you have two weeks. Two weeks, and then that will be test time. We will bring you up here individually, and you will say it. You're like, ah, he's kidding. No, not really. All right. Um, We're just going to jump right in uh, because we have a large section. Today we're doing Jude. We thought we're going to do it in four, but we're going to do it in three sermons. And today's all about judgment. Praise God, right? Now, just so you know, I love judgment passages. Like, I really do. Like, my wife... She's been listening to me all week. I'm like, man, we get, we get to talk about God's judgment and how amazing is this? And she's like, you're, you're sick. Uh, but I do, I do greatly love them because there's such a benefit and a beauty and they're a means of grace in our salvation and to spur us on in our faith. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and stand and uh, we're going to read our passage uh, here at Timberline. We stand at the reading of God's word. So every week we'll stand as we read our main teaching passage uh, because God's word comes inspired for the purpose of equipping us. So this text, this huge judgment text, is given to us so you and I would be equipped, so we would live a life of righteousness, so we would know how to obey God and what it looks like to faithfully follow him It's a large section. We're going to start verse 3, go to verse 16. Here we go. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality 
and deny our master and Lord Jesus Christ. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an, as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people, also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not, pronounce, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain. To Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees, and late autumn twice dead uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars from whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Let's pray. Father, Father, this is a, a judgment of a, passage, a judgment passage. It is a complex passage, steeped in Old Testament. And Lord, I just pray, give us wisdom today as we look at it. God, may your purpose in inspiring this text to be written and handed down through the generations, may it be accomplished even in us today as we look at your word and as your spirit, as your spirit speaks it and applies it to our very heart and to our souls. And so, Lord, bless this time as we read your word. May we be so aware of false teaching. May we abhor false teaching. May we run from it, and may we cling to the gospel. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. The title today is God is Faithful to Judge. Um, probably could have put also, Run to Jesus. That would have been a very applicable title also because he's giving this passage so we would run and hold on to the gospel all the more. And so uh, we're going to start out with a couple questions. What is Jude writing about? Verse 3, Jude says, I want to write about our common salvation. He says, I'm so excited about talking about the forgiveness of sins and the joy that we have of being forgiven, adopted into the family of God. That's what I want to talk about. But then something has happened. 
rather than speaking about the joy of their salvation. He writes for them to contend for the faith. And the word contend means, means to stand firm. It means to fight. It means to persevere. It means do not waver in your beliefs. So what's caused the topic change? Why has he changed from wanting to talk about salvation to contending for the faith? And so that's what brings us to verse 4. And we see why Jude is writing. And we see certain people have crept in to the church unnoticed. False teachers have made their way into the church. They're teaching a false gospel. And what we see, we see here, and we see in almost every New Testament book, a warning against false teachers. We think the greatest danger is outside the church. We think the greatest danger is out there somewhere. But all throughout the Bible, we continually see that one of the greatest threats that we will face is when people inside the church will teach a false gospel that will lead the people of God away from the true gospel and worship of the one true God. So he's warning us about this danger. I mean, we read about this. Listen to, what, listen to what Paul says in Acts chapter 20. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves. He's speaking to the elders of, of Ephesus. And he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. He says this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you, your own selves, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw them, to draw away the disciples after them. So where do these people come? From within the church. From where do they come? From among the elders even. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. All throughout the Bible, the greatest danger we face is not out there but in here. It's people who we will trust and they will present a false gospel because people out there might hurt you, but a false gospel will lead you away to eternal damnation. Much, much greater danger when we believe false gospels. And so what are they teaching? That's what I want us to look at. And before we actually look at their teaching, we need to see that false teachers are not believers. Verse 4 says they are ungodly. Verse 19, which we'll look at in a couple weeks, says they are worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Every believer has been given the Spirit of God. Ephesians, Paul says that the Spirit is the guarantee of our salvation. So anyone without the Spirit is not a believer. So false teachers do not know the gospel. So we're not talking about someone who might stand up here and teach just a variation of a doctrine that might be slightly different but still within evangelical boundaries. We're talking about someone who is teaching a different gospel that leads us away from the truth of God and his son Jesus to something different. And so what are they teaching? And so I want us to camp out here for a few moments because understanding verse 4 is very critical, and it's very applicable today for where we live. It says that they distort the purity of the gospel. Look at verse 4. It says they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. To, to pervert means to distort, to change. And the word sensuality basically means giving a license to sin. So this is what they're saying. They're saying because you are saved, 
Because you are forgiven, you can live however you want. You've been saved. You've been saved by grace. You did nothing to earn it, and there's nothing you can do to lose it. So you are saved. Freedom to live however you want. Paul, Paul faces the same thing in Romans 6, remember? Where, where they say, shall we sin all the more? And Paul says, no. By no means can we who have been saved by God continue to live in sin. But these false teachers will say, you know, obedience is optional. And they'll treat your salvation more like fire insurance. You have it in case you need it. But let's be real. None of us thinks about fire insurance, right? I mean, none of us have thought probably about our life insurance policies the last couple of weeks. No one thought about their home insurance yesterday. Unless, unless disaster happens, we don't think about these insurance policies that we have. You have it for only when you need it, but it doesn't affect the way I live on a normal, everyday basis. This is what they're speaking on regarding our salvation. And so there are many people who, who know that this teaching is wrong, but we live like it functionally. Does that make sense? Like we know that's not right, but we're, we're living as if we do believe our salvation uh, and obedience is optional. In fact, uh, I want to share one phrase with you, with you which I think contributes to this type of thinking. Have you heard the phrase, once saved, always saved? Now, we are fully, fully believe in the assurance of our salvation. When we preached the book of Hebrews, where we taught about the assurance of our salvation, the perseverance of the saints. And so you can go through many of our sermons that are online. You can look on where we teach on this issue. But what does once saved, always saved communicate? Or what can it communicate? There are many people I have talked to. I've talked to you all about this some of you have asked me regarding your loved ones, family members. You all have heard people say things where someone says, you know, I was saved 20, 30, 40 years ago. Never lived like Jesus. Don't live like the Bible at all. Don't really, you know, obey God's word. Am I saved? Have you ever heard someone say something like that, either regarding themselves or regarding someone else? And what do they say? Well, once saved, always saved. Like, we were saved, and so now we, can, we can't ever lose it. And while we would, again, believe in the assurance of our salvation, we believe in a gospel that transforms us. But the people who believe, once saved, always saved, in just that very loose, immature form that those words contribute, is they think of salvation as purely an event. This happened. I bought life insurance, so I'm good. But the gospel is not just an event, but it's a transformation. Any gospel that does not transform you is a false gospel and cannot save you. Does that make sense? The gospel saves us, takes us from spiritually dead to spiritual life. I mean, if you think about it, go to the cemetery and just think, what would happen if everyone was alive at this moment? Would this look different? It would look radically different. Don't picture that. It gets morbid. It'd be really weird. But when we begin to think that once saved, always saved, and that we have this ability just to sin, and obedience is absolutely optional, then all of a sudden, gathering with the church doesn't really matter. We come when it's convenient. Reading the Bible and prayer, well, we'll get to it when we get to it. Fathers and mothers can neglect their role of, of shepherding their children because it's optional. 
Husbands and wives can neglect the roles God has given them. Divorce becomes not only permissible, but accepted and assumed. Sex outside of marriage is seen as normal. Sexual identities are affirmed and accepted. We compromise on so many parts of God's word at this moment. We need to know a gospel that does not transform you is a false gospel and cannot save you. Jesus died on a cross, rose again three days later, so you'd be saved. And what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, you'd become a new creation. Live a new life with new desires and new passions. In fact, this is what the prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament, he's looking forward to the new covenant, to the promise of Jesus Christ and what that's going to mean. So this is what Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 36, 27. And I want you to just think about what this passage means about how we live. He says, And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So the hope in the Old Testament is that with the coming of Christ, the spirit will come and dwell within every single believer in such a way that he will cause them to walk and to follow after him. That we will be careful to obey the rules of God. Many of you know we preached the book of James a couple years ago. James said in his letter, faith without works is dead. We're not saved by our works, and by no means are we saying that. But real faith produces works. You cannot be a believer in Jesus Christ and not begin to live like Jesus. You cannot. If there's nothing at all that begins in your life to look like Christ, then you're not a Christian. Because from the moment you are saved, the Spirit is in you, transforming you from degree to degree to degree to degree to degree that we become more like Jesus. So that's the number one thing that they're teaching. They're saying, that's not true. You can believe in Jesus and do whatever you want. No strings attached. Life insurance is good. Cash in when judgment day happens. Number two, they deny the authority of Jesus. Look at verse four. The very end, it says, they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. To deny the authority of Jesus and distort the gospel of Jesus is really to just see two sides of the same coin. You cannot affirm the truthfulness of God and deny the authority of Jesus. You cannot do that. You cannot affirm the authority of Jesus and deny the truthfulness of Scripture. You cannot do that. You deny one, you deny the other every single time. And every single false teaching will deny the authority of Jesus Christ. Every single one. Uh, Mormonism, Jehovah Witness, Hinduism, Islam, atheism, and you can just keep going on. All of them will distort who Jesus Christ is. They will deny his divinity or they will deny his humanity. Either way, they will distort who Jesus is, and once that happens, you will lose the gospel every single time. You go hand in hand. And so Jude, he wants us to know there's consequences to this. If you believe in a false gospel, there are consequences. And these people who are propagating a false gospel, there are consequences for that. And so verses 5 through 16 is his proof. It's his evidence. He's going to say, I want you to know that these false teachers, these people who are teaching this message, they will be judged. Verses 5 through 16 gives you proof. 
That's what will happen. And so real quick, what I want to do is I'm going to give you a really quick outline of, this, of the passage because we're not going to look at most of it. So I just want you to know how it looks, and Jude is really well organized, really well organized. So I just have this up on the screen. Uh, so in verses 5 through 7, he gives you three Old Testament historical events, which then he'll apply, and then he's going to give you the illustration of the archangel Michael, and then he's going to apply that again, and then he's going to give you three historical Old Testament persons that experience God's judgment. He's going to apply that. He's going to give an illustration from, from the book of Enoch, and then he's going to give application again and apply all that to these false teachers. So that's how verses 5 through 16 work. We didn't really have space to put that in the bulletin, so I was like, well, whoever wants it, there it is, right quickly. There you go. Um, what we're going to do is just briefly look at these three historical events that he wants us to know about in verses 5, 6, and 7. And many of you, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, these are going to be um, a reminder to you. Um, So number one, we start with the wilderness generation in verse 5. He says, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. The book of Exodus is about God bringing a people out of Egypt, bringing them into the wilderness where they will come to Mount Sinai. They will experience God. They will enter into covenant with him. He will lead them into the wilderness to where they will eventually uh, enter into the promised land. But from the moment he takes them out of Egypt, they grumble, they complain, they reject his authority, they question the authority of Moses over and over and over and over again. We can look at many cases But he brings them all the way to the brink of entering into the promised land. He says, okay, here we go, go. And do you remember what they do in Numbers, I think it's 13? We're not going to go. We don't think you can actually bring us in there and save us and deliver on all your promises. So they reject God, they reject his purposes, they reject his promises. And so what does God do? He judges them. They spent 40 years into the wilderness until every single person of that generation will die in the wilderness because they rejected God. Those who reject him, who resist his authority, will not enter into his blessing and his promises. All of them were destroyed. The next generation will then be allowed to come in. And we see that. There at the end of verse 5 where he, he talks about the destruction that they entered. Next, he, he gives us this example about angels. And this comes from Genesis 6. And it's one of those really weird passages which would be fun to spend more time in. But we're not. Uh, so this is prior to the flood. And we have angels that have left the positions that God has given them. And this is just a description of the wickedness of, that's come into this world because of sin. And we see... That these angels have left the position that God has assigned them and given them. They've rebelled against the commands and authority of God. And they've come to earth where now they seek to have sexual relations with humanity. And so we're told then, because of this rebellion, because of this resistance, he has kept an eternal change under under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So again, we have these who have rejected the commands of God. They've rejected his authority. 
or judge. Last one, Sodom and Gomorrah. Now these, these two cities are really just a picture of the world that we live in. They're two cities that gave into every lust, every greed, every adultery, every sinful desire they had. They gave into it. They said, it's fine. We can, we can do what we want. Verse 7 says the word unnatural desire, meaning not only did they have uh, promiscuous sex outside of marriage, but they also engaged in homosexual behavior. They lived however they wanted. Their motto was uh, live however you want. Your desire is king. And do you remember what the judgment was? He rained down fire upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Now that's, that's meant for you and I to read that and to see a taste, an Old Testament shadowy picture of a much greater judgment that will come in Revelation 20 for all who have rebelled against the authority of God will experience the fiery wrath of his judgment. And so that's what we see. So he gives these three historical Old Testament events, and we could dig more into them, but all of them are about rejecting and resisting the authority of God, disobeying his word, and living however they want, and all of them experience judgment because of that. Next, you have three historical people. We're just going to go through these real quick. You have Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Each one of them rebelled against the commands of God. Each one of them rebelled against the authority of God. They thought that they should be able to live how they want. They embraced the idea that God does not see our sin and there are no consequences for sin. When you go into the book of Psalms, you'll read that over and over and over again. That as the, as the psalmist will write and he'll say, the ungodly act as though there is no consequence for their sin. They see, they do not believe God sees their sin. But what we'll see in a little bit and what Jude's point is, is God, God does see in fact, Proverbs 16 says, everyone who, is in, everyone who is arrogant in his heart is an abomination to the Lord. He, be assured, he will not go unpunished. There are consequences for how we live and how we understand who God is and how we live in light of who God is. And we'll get to that in a moment. But what we've looked at, so there's historical events, there are historical persons, all examples of rebelling against the authority of God, thinking that we should be able to give in to our own passions and desires, all are judged in the Old Testament. But he applies all of this to the false teachers. And when you're in, your, and when you're in the book of Jude, if you want to find the application sections, these people, these people, or it'll just have the word these, these, these. And every time you come across that, he's applying Old Testament truth now to these people, these false teachers who are presently teaching false gospels. So that's where you know the application is. Every time he uses these, 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 these. And he wants us to know for at least two reasons. One, he wants us to know what do we need to be on guard against? Who are these false teachers who do we want to make sure it doesn't stand before the church and, and teaches a false gospel? But I also think, especially in today, it, we're not only looking out for the false teacher, but we need to really be specific on just the false teaching because we all can listen to sermons 
and spiritual teaching all day long. There is so much social media between YouTube and Facebook, and there are more sermons online, which in many ways is great. We're online. So there are many great things. There are great things that we can have more sermons and more good quality Christian teaching online than ever before. But with that, there is more ungodly teaching going forth than ever before. And there are many times, and you've heard them too, where people say, oh, I'm listening to this person. And you're going, wait, that, that's a false teacher. There are many, many people in the churches who are listening to people who have large platforms because we often equate large platform to success and to quality of teaching, as if their teaching is in line with Scripture. But I would, I would, I would say this, be careful of everyone who is online. And I, we're online, so I say that, be careful of everyone who is online. Don't go by reputation or anything else, go by what they say, and does it align with Scripture every single time. The large platform means nothing if they teach against Scripture. So be very, very, very careful. And just side note, if anyone is an online pastor, no, they're not. There's no such thing as an online pastor. It's a stupid thing. I said it again. My wife loves when I say stupid. She'll be like, eh, you shouldn't say stupid. Um, literally, just think about it. We, we, we talk about this lately, even in our, in our, with our elders and the elder candidates. To be a pastor, to be an elder, is to be an elder in a particular church where you are shepherding particular people. To be a pastor is not this ambiguous term where whoever signs in today, that's, that's my flock. No, that's ridiculous because you give an account for your flock. So who do you want to give an account for? The internet? I have no desire to ever want to take that responsibility. So that is absolutely ridiculous. And any church that thinks that that is the means in which they shepherd and lead, I would say they're departing from the truth of Scripture. Be very, very careful of that. Okay, so here we go. Four characteristics of false teachers. Number one, they reject the authority of God's word. All false teachings will deny all or parts of God's word. Look at verse 8. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but we cannot miss it. These false teachers are dreamers. They rely upon visionary experiences more than the truthfulness of God's word. And this is so incredibly dangerous today. So, I hear it all the time. People who want to trust in a dream or a word. You hear that? I got a word. I got a word for you from God. Listen to me because I have a word from God to you. And so now you should listen to me and my word. You hear that all the time. And every time we have those words, they seem to justify our feelings rather than the truthfulness of God's word. Every time. I don't need your word. I need 66 books filled with God's word. That's what I need. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't lead us and inspire us in certain ways and, and impress certain things. By no means am I saying that. But he is not giving you an inspired, authoritative word that is applicable for the church today. He did that. It's been inspired. It has its full authority from God. I don't need your word. You don't need my word. And you don't need my dreams. Or my daughter's dream. She had a weird dream last night. Apparently, we all went to prison. 
this morning. She's like, this was horrible, Dad. We all went to prison. I'm like, all of us? Well, not Mom. <laughs> so I said, so Mom turned us in. And she's like, no, I don't think so. Mom was teaching soccer, so that gave, it was weird. You see what you missed out on at breakfast this morning? You don't, you don't need my dream. You don't need visionary experiences. What we need is this truth right here. And anything that departs from this truth is wrong. Anything and everything. I don't care how big the platform is. I don't care the alliteration. I don't care how eloquent it is put. It is wrong. It is false. It leads you towards false gospels, which lead to damnation every time. That's his point. Be aware of false teachers. They give you no substance. Verse 12 says they're waterless clouds. They're shepherds who feed themselves rather than the flock. Pay no attention to them. I've said this many times. I say it again today. I think the greatest need of the church is to know God's word. I think too many Christians are biblically illiterate. I think it's the greatest, greatest need. If that's you, that's you. So don't take that as like a a mean thing, take that as encouragement. Be in God's word. Think of it like, think of it like you're, you're a rock. And every time you come into God's word, the spirit starts chiseling away at you. And it's a slow process. But little bit by little bit by little bit by little bit, he's chiseling us all in preparation for the day that Christ returns. That we'll be able to be presented holy and blameless before him. That's what God's word does to you and I every single time we're in it. We always, we like to think that if we come to God's word, there's going to be this massive event that's going to happen because we like to be event-minded. And you know, all of a sudden we'll just be radically changed when you, like, when you switch a light bulb from dark to light. But what I find is that the, the chiseling of scripture is slow. Little bit by little bit, or as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, degree by degree by degree by degree making us more and more in line with his word, that we would love him and live more faithfully to him each day. So number one, they depart from God's word. Number two, they love themselves. Jude says in verse 10, they blaspheme, they blaspheme things they don't understand, meaning spiritual things. He then says they're destroyed because they act like unreasoning animals. The apostle Peter says the same thing. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 12, he says, but these... Remember who these is. These are always the false teachers. Like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters which they are ignorant, spiritual things, and will be destroyed in their destruction. I mean, I think we all know animals are, are not what are going to perform deductive reasoning. They live by instinct. They do what feels good. They follow and pursue their lusts. They do what they want. And the number one goal of these false teachers is to do what they want, is to look out for themselves. Just as a male dog instinctively will do whatever he can to get to a female in heat, so these false teachers will do whatever it takes to satisfy their preferences, their feelings, and their desires. When they preach, when they teach, you are the subject, me is the subject, not God. And you'll hear it over and over, you be you. Speak your truth. You're enough. Be true to yourself. I mean, aren't those cute? You put those on coffee mugs. Feel good about yourself every morning. You drink it. Be good. Be true to yourself. 
Those are just ungodly, unspiritual sayings that are meant to affirm your identity in sinfulness and not in Christ. It's all that they are. And every time you come into these these, uh, teachings, it's all about me. In fact, the words uh, of the pro-choice movement echo it perfectly, my body, my choice. I'm king. I'm king. God's not king. I'm king. I do what I want, and there's no consequence for it. So, So live however you want. And this means not only do we affirm, but we accept every sexual lifestyle and everything that you want. Because that's what we do, because love has now been redefined by how we want it to be defined, not by God's word. So we need to regularly ask, am I I living in the passions of my desires or in obedience to God's word? And if you're not regularly in God's word, I would greatly warn you, you are living in the passions of your desires more than obedience to God's word. Do you live as if there's no, no consequences to your actions? Again, I, I would say most of us would say, no, I, I totally understand that when I was saved, I was transformed, I'm supposed to live a new way. But do you live that way? Or do we functionally live as though there really are not consequences? The way I parent, the way I'm a husband, the way I'm a mother, the way I work. Am I really letting all that be conformed by the scripture that God has given us? Number three, they fail to fear God. Verse 12, Jude says, these false teachers are like hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. Now, love feast probably refers to communion that the church takes when they gather. And what we see is that these false teachers come and they have no fear. Meaning, there is no examination of their life. They say, we're going to take the juice and the bread. All right, I'm hungry. Let's do that. Let's dig in. In fact, let's get full on it, and let's eat as much as we can. And there's no examination. There's no remembrance of the gospel. In fact, they approach the communion table like you do Starbucks. You walk up, you give them your most complicated order that you ever can, you get your drink and you walk away, and you don't really ever think about the barista again, right? I was going to use an example, but really, the only thing I ever get is black coffee. And if I splurge, it's a mocha, so I don't know anything about half soy whip. I don't even know what you guys get. I I couldn't do it, I couldn't write it, so um, be careful about those who teach without any fear of God. I don't mean like fear, like being afraid of God, but a trembling that my whole body moves towards God and I love him and I'm submitting everything I have to God at all times because we love who God is. Be aware about those who teach that God is more like, more like your friend or your roommate than the holy God who created all things and sent his son Jesus to die on a cross. One thing you hear so much about false teachers is come, come to God. He's like your friend. And they want to make him like you and me, like he's made in our image versus we're made in his image. There's no need to tremble before a God made like me. There's no need to tremble before a God made like you. They trivialize who God is every time. And lastly, they complain constantly. Ozon, help me with the wording of that one. <laughs> I was like, Ozon, how do I say this? He said, well, they complain all the time. So thank you, Ozon. Look at verse 16. They grumble. They're malcontents. 
What a fun word, malcontent. We need to use that more. It means fault finder. They're loudmouth boasters. Jesus says the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart that his mouth speaks. So whatever comes out of your mouth originated in your heart. So when you say, oops, I didn't really mean to say that. You should actually say, oops, I actually let out what was in my heart at that moment. Because that's actually what just happened. What comes out of your heart reveals what's in your mouth. We need to be very, very, very careful with our grumbling, with our complaining. I once had a guy come into my office, and he told me all the problems of his church. And he just listed them one after another, over and over and over. Then he said, but man, I am, I'm actually extremely gifted in preaching and teaching and ministration and leading and serving and training and everything else. Um, but the problem was the church wouldn't let him serve and use his gifts. And so he said, I think I should come here and use my gifts. And then he, he told me about the book, that the best book that he ever wrote was, or that he ever read was. And then he handed me a copy of it, and you can just guess who the author of that book was. It was him. Now, most false teachers, I'll just say, are not quite so blatant. Because remember, they, they creep into the church unnoticed. But if you listen... If you listen, you'll begin to hear, and their words will begin to reveal who they are. They don't wear name tags that say false teacher or destructive heretic. That would be helpful. They're wolves in sheep clothing. So this is why some of you are like, membership. Why do you guys do membership? This is why we have membership. Membership is so incredibly important with the body of Christ that we know who we are. Who are those that we are affirming their salvation? Who do we, and that serves even as a prerequisite for anyone who would then be an elder or any other position that they would teach. Every single teacher downstairs with your children are members that we have walked through the gospel with and that we say we affirm their understanding of the gospel and their identity in Jesus Christ. This is why we are slow to make people elders. 1 Timothy 3.6 says we need to be slow on this. We need to hear how they speak and, and how they live. Don't make a new convert, an elder, too quickly. We want to make sure we understand what's in their heart. I remember the first time I heard Rob Bell. Any of you know him? So um, I, was in, I was in Michigan at the time. He kind of became famous and, and he was a megachurch just north of me, and he was putting out these videos called Numa, and he was putting out a lot of things, and there were some things he said which you're like, wow, that, that's, that's right on, that's good stuff. But there was enough things he said that we just said there's something off about the way he says things. Shortly later, he, he left the church, he shows up on Oprah multiple times, and his church is now the beach where he worships God when he serves and does whatever he wants because he defines who his God is and how he will worship God, not Scripture. And he has led many, 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 many people away from, from the true gospel. So I ask you, how do you use your words? You should think about your words. How do you talk about the church? I found this to be true. Those who complain and grumble about the church will eventually leave the church. How do you talk about the church? I mean, just think about it. If you grumble about your spouse all the time, is it easy to love them? 
If you grumble about your coworker, do you, do you want to love them? If you grumble about the church all the time, then you're definitely listening for someone who comes with new teaching offering a better church. Be very, very careful with your own words, not only because what your words say, but because of what your words reveal within you. And so I encourage you, if you are here and you're beginning to notice grumbling in your life, repent of that. Ask others to come in and help point out those. And it's painful. Nobody likes to have people point out the sins in their life, but it's so necessary. So I urge you, if you begin to grumble, and I, and I want free reign. Free reign. If you're here, and you're a believer, and you see a pattern in someone else's life of grumbling, go to them. We should do that. I'm not going to promise you they're going to respond well. But that, we, don't, we don't be faithful for other people's responses, but we are to be loving and gentle. And I would say pray a lot, be very gentle, be very kind, be very soft in your words, but let us confront those who are developing a pattern of grumbling because I will tell you, we probably don't see it because sin is blinding. So we probably don't know. So let us, let us just treat everyone like family, brothers and sisters that we are, and where we see a pattern develop, let's go to each other gently. Grumbling reveals what's happening in the heart. Let us pull those weeds out of our heart quickly. So that's what we need to look out for. And as we have looked at those four things, you need to think through whether it's ever someone that's going to be here on a Sunday teaching or any internet that you're listening to, any podcast, anything like that. You'd be thinking through these four things at least. And there's so much more. We're just touching Jude. But you need to then examine your own life and go, have I believed any of this? Because we live in a world where there is just false gospels everywhere. And we often don't know how immersed we are in the things that we're taking up in ourselves until it gets pointed out. So I encourage you, don't, don't just you know, try to look for the false teacher and say, okay, I'm avoiding that. But look in your own life and say, is there any false teaching I'm believing? Or maybe, is there any false teaching I'm living out, but I would not say that I am, but functionally I do live out this false teaching. Maybe that's in the reading of God's word. Maybe you're not reading God's word. Maybe you're not gathering with the church. Maybe you've abandoned your role as a husband or as a mother, as a wife. I think I forgot one in there. As a dad. Begin looking at your own life. So I want to close. I want to close by looking at God's judgment. And I, and I do this because Jude writes this to believers. And every judgment passage in the Bible is written to the church. You realize that? This is where it's going to be read, here. With the church. So yes, it is applicable to unbelievers, but it's much more applicable to us. Because he's writing it so we would see the false gospel. We would know what it is. Our eyes would be open. He'd say, hey guys, people have crept in. You're not aware of this. I'm writing this so you know there's a false gospel. And then he's writing it so we would run from it because it ends in destruction. So he says, I don't want any of you to end in this destruction. So run from it. Run to Jesus. 
And then the third reason would be so that we live zealously for the gospel, which that will be the, the last uh, sermon that we do, which all talks about how we contend for the faith. So three truths about God's judgment. Number one, it's, in, it's, inex, it's unescapable. No one who resists the gospel of Jesus will escape the judgment of God. The Bible says God will pursue his enemies into the darkness and he will destroy them. What that means is there is no place you can hide. Do not presume on the present patience of God that you are right with God. Does that make sense? Just because you're not experiencing judgment right now for a sinful lifestyle, don't presume you're right before God. Romans 2 says God is patient and merciful, so more will come to know him. So his patience on you is so you would repent and believe in him now and trust in him now. Now is the time of mercy. Now is the time to repent. Now is the time to receive his gracious forgiveness because none who deny him on that day will escape his judgment. Number two, his judgment is on. Bearable. God's judgment is described as the gnashing of teeth, the lake of fire. In Revelation 6, we are told people will long for rocks to be thrown and to be crushed by them, rather to be engaged with the glory of God. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, it is better for you to gouge out your eye and cut off your hand than to face God on that day. It will be absolutely unbearable and unfathomable. And it's unquenchable. His fiery judgment will lick at your soul for all of eternity. You will gnaw your tongue off in eternal anguish. It's emotional. Revelation 14 says, and the smoke of their torment, talking about those who resist God, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Anyone who believes in annihilationism, Romans 14, 10, and 11 speaks against that because it says it will go up forever and ever and ever and ever, no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, whoever receives the mark of its name. And that refers to every unbeliever. Believers are marked with the spirit. Unbelievers are marked with the spirit of ungodliness. Everyone who does not believe in Jesus will forever, ever, ever suffer under the torment of God. That's what Jude wants us to know. There's false teachers. They have crept in. They're speaking. Do not listen to them. Run from them. Remove them. Get them out of the church. This is why we give warnings to our children so they will not fall into certain sins and they will not go into certain levels of disobedience. When you see a cop on the side of the road, what do you do? You immediately slow down. Why? Because there's consequence. Jude is giving you, there's consequence. You, you can live how you want right now. You can think God does not see, but God does see. There's 66 books that testify God does see and a day is coming. So if you've not yet trusted in Jesus, I pray that you would believe today. The message of Judas, repent today, believe now, run to Jesus now, experience his grace now and today. Have the forgiveness of your sins now because there is a day coming.
No one escapes that day who has not believed in Jesus. And if you have trusted in Jesus, then I encourage you, regularly examine your life. I think sometimes we forget that. We neglect that. We fall under that once saved, always saved. But regularly examine our life so make sure we don't begin believing or affirming any of these false gospels that would lead us away. And as a church, we need to encourage one another often. This is why we do table groups. This is why we gather so much. Because we need people looking at our lives, encouraging us, pressing us on in the gospel, and making sure there's nothing building up in our lives. This is why we do things like man camp. This is my plug, man camp. So if you're not coming to man camp, come to man camp. Except if you're a woman, don't come to man camp. You won't be allowed. You won't want to. That's where we come in and we just press in on each other and we just spend time in God's word saying there's nothing more important than this. And so I encourage you today, if you've not trusted in the gospel, believe in him, trust in him. You can do that right where you're at and just believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior. And if you do that, I would love to talk to you afterwards and pray with you and come alongside you. There's many others that would like to do that. And if you're here today, and I want to encourage you, if there's sin in your life, if you have a grumbling spirit, if you're biblically illiterate because you are not in the word of God, if you are abandoning the obedience to God's word, if you begin to trust or functionally trust in false gospels, I encourage you to repent today before you come take communion. Let us not be like these false teachers who come to the love feast without fear. Let us come because we love our God and his grace is so extravagant that he saves us, that we would live with him forever. So I'm going to pray. And as I pray, um, I want you to pray. And I want you to either pray and receive Christ or pray and, and repent of any sin in your life and just examine yourself before God. And, and if for any reason you don't think that you should come partake of communion, please stay seated. Everyone's going to come forward in a few moments. Ushers will dismiss you and you'll come and you'll take the elements. But if, if you don't feel like that's right right now, that's okay. If you want to talk after I or some of the other elders or deacons would love to talk with you and pray with you. But I urge you, take this time now. And if you're able to, when we're done with clear conscience, come and partake of communion. We would desire you to be able to do that with us. But let's take a few moments and pray. Our Father... We come to you now. And Lord, we, we know your gospel is good. It is great. It is glorious. It saves us from our sins. But Lord, we, we still battle just as Paul says in Romans 7. Sometimes the things I want to do, I don't do. And things I, I want to do, I don't do. And so, Father, I pray if that is true in any one of us right now that we would confess that sin. God, if there are men here who have not been shepherding their wives, if they have not been shepherding their children, if they have not been in your word, if they have not been praying, if they have not committed to the church, if they're not living holy lives, if they're hiding lust and porn and sexual immorality in their life, Lord, expose that right now in their heart, in their mind, and may they confess it. Lord, if there's any woman here who is the same, 
where they're not following after your word and trusting in you, where they're harboring sin, a grumbling heart, bitterness, slander, gossip, where they're arrogant, sexual morality, Expose that now in their heart that they may confess that. Lord, may we be a people who regularly repent of our sins. Lord, I pray for every student here that, Lord, that they would know you, they would believe in you, and if they have not believed in you, that today they would. May no one wait. Lord, you are good and you are gracious and you are giving us time now to repent and time now to believe in you. So I pray we take that time right now. May we run to you. May every single person just run to you and confess that you are Lord and Savior and we experience the forgiveness of our sins. And Lord, if there is someone here who has not believed in you, Lord, maybe they have questions, maybe there's things that are arising in their heart, but Lord, I just pray that where it is good to have questions, Lord, I pray that your spirit would give them the clarity they need to go. No matter what questions I have, I know that I'm a sinner in need of forgiveness before God. Lord, we just pray they come and believe in you today. Lord, your judgment is real. Your judgment is righteous. Your judgment is holy. And we will praise you on that day when your judgment comes. Not because we long for people to be destroyed, but because we love your righteousness. So, Lord, I pray. I pray we don't run from judgment passages. I pray that we would press into them, that your spirit would have its full effect on our heart as we read these passages. They would bring conviction where necessary. Lord, bless this time of communion now where we come and we realize that the only reason we will not be judged is by the grace of your son Jesus dying on the cross. And so Lord, may this time, may it be somber, but may it be sweet as we take these elements. In your name, Jesus, amen.